I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. So a few episodes ago, I did an interview with a teacher here, uh, Ajin Said Abdullah, about the limitations uh, with the uh, public school sector here and some of the larger structural flaws with how education uh, and educators are dealt with in general. And a huge topic that came up then and, and one that basically comes up anytime you want to talk about shortcomings with the public sector or services in Kurdistan is the year 2014. Uh, 2014 uh, was the year that the Islamic State began to take over lands and cities in Kurdistan and Iraq at a very rapid pace, and that deeply affected the economy here. Uh, and the recovery uh, is still taking place to this day. Uh, and when I spoke to Ajin uh, for the education episode, we discussed how 2014's collapse was reflected in the education sector uh, in a few different ways, but primarily uh, with teachers not getting paid Uh, either on time or at all sometimes, uh, or not receiving bonuses uh, that they should be owed, uh, which is a problem here that still hasn't gone away. Um, Today, I want to focus on another education crisis that arose uh, from 2014, which is education for displaced children of families that had to flee their homes when the Islamic State took over their area. And specifically today, I'm sitting down with a specialist who focuses on childhood education for children that have had to face an enormous amount of trauma uh, and 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 stress in a very short amount of time. Jessica Prentice uh, came to Kurdistan eight years ago and began independently connecting with teachers who were part of these communities and establishing a program to try and help primarily Yazidi kids uh, who were and still are living in camps in Kurdistan uh, with moving past their traumas in a healthy way and getting back to learning and growing despite their situation. Uh, And she's done this work uh, with Friends of Waldorf, uh, which is a German-based education organization, uh, which is focused, um, for those who are unfamiliar uh, with the Waldorf style of teaching, I'll say that it's it's sort of a Montessori style uh, of education philosophy. I'm sure that someone who is more familiar with the intricacies and differences between all of these different types of schools might take exception to that. Uh, But in general... I'll say that the idea with Waldorf schools and Waldorf education is to take the education curriculum presented to a child and allow them to have a more hands-on approach with regards to what and how quickly they learn certain topics, which can be great uh, for kids uh, who are recovering from very stressful situations because it allows them to sort of get more control over over how they're growing. So in this interview, we we get into different methodologies that can help children in these camps learn and grow more easily, as well as what needs to improve with the current systems that these camps operate by. Uh, So with all that covered, here's my conversation with Jessica Prentice. I'm just going to hit record right now. Okay. All right, we're live. Fortunately, uh, wait, we're not live. We're recording, right? We're recording. Yeah, we're not live. There's no broadcasting. (laughs) This is in Babylon FM. (laughs) No, that's the great thing about a podcast is you can mess up as much as you want. Yeah, and then just cut it out. I mean, I'm going to keep this in just to, you know, spite (laughs) both of us. It's actually nice uh, because a few months ago when we were doing uh, interviews uh, in here, it got so hot, especially because of this curtain. And now 
we can actually sit in here for 30 minutes without sweating. Without just dripping. Yes. Not an hour. I haven't hit an hour without being like, no, this isn't. <laughs> oxygen. <laughs> I need oxygen. <laughs> you, you biked here, correct? I did, yes. Yes. Which um, is something actually, surprisingly, I do actually enjoy here in Erbil. I, it, um, I started biking in Kurdistan about uh, one year into living here. So the first year. I wasn't quite sure whether that was like one of those cultural border, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, that I could push or whether I'd be stepping on somebody's toes. And then I realized, no, I, that's something I, you know, it's not common. Women don't do it here, especially not foreign women, but it's something I can do. If you're taking care of, you know, controlling what's going on in the traffic, it's it's actually fine. I mean, okay, so you started biking. When you started biking, you were, you weren't here. You were in Zaho, correct? Correct. I just moved to Duhok, so um, after the first year. So the first year that I lived in Kurdistan, I moved straight to Zaho because I'd come to build up a um, program, a capacity building program in a working as a special needs teacher with traumatized children. And... Um, the initial idea was to work within the IDP camps that had just been open at the beginning of 2015 for the ZD population who had survived the genocide of 2014 and had fled into the northern part of the Kurdistan and were settled into these uh, camps. Could you give me a little more about your like background as an educator and also in general with education? Mm-hmm. Because like your your background in education is also very interesting, kind of unique as well. So um, within my studies, um, I had studied international education and then um, part of it was also specializing in special needs education. And then my professional path actually went then into a different direction where I'd been working in international festival management for quite a few years based in Berlin. And then I moved to Spain where I then went back into teaching within the public school system in Spain. And there I specialized um, with a further training in working with um, yeah, within special needs programs for children who were struggling within the public education system. And there my main focus was basically working with children who had had traumatizing events in their life and were really struggling to incorporate back into public schools. And when you went to Zaho, the first community members that you met up with were teachers, correct? Correct. So when I moved to Zaho, as I said, at the beginning of 2015, that was still pretty much at the height of the, um, you know, all that was going down <laughs> the with the Islamic IDPs, State yeah. uh, in within Iraq. Um, I I was, well, I, now I would describe it as I was in the fortunate situation to not come within a set-up NGO mm-hmm. bubble, but I came here by myself just knowing that I have knowledge and experience in working with children that are struggling in these certain life uh, situations. And this is a knowledge I would like to share with people working with these children in this community. So I came here by myself, and but because it was still all very, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Daesh was pretty much, you know, not that far from, from the area. Um, and I didn't have any kind of security and I had no idea what they looked like, mm-hmm. basically. So um, my decision was to, for my own protection, to basically rent an apartment amongst um, um, people who had fled from Mosul before Mosul fell in the hands of, of the Islamic State. Um, just, you know, knowing that they knew what they looked like and they would certainly, you know, um, shout out if somebody dodgy looking was in the community. So I thought that was my ba- my best security net was just to be amongst these people. And then it turned out that the two neighbors that I befriended very quickly, neighboring families, um, both of them had been teachers in Mosul. And so um, I knew basically from my training and work experience what are you know main tools I can give to teachers who are trying to work with children in these um, situations. But then through the conversations with my two neighbors, it was re- I was really able to 
understand where where do I need to pick up the teachers, you know, that were teaching in public education mm -hmm. within Kurdistan, um, to understand, you know, in general what are what are their skills within teaching methods? How what you know how much do they understand about, you know, different teaching approaches, and where can I sort of like f build up a program that picks them up from where they are and really gives them some additional tools to work with as they try to, in this very, very challenging situation, to work, uh, yeah, to incorporate children back into public education. That's actually what I like about the way that you did it so much is that you didn't, as you call it, you didn't come in with like an NGO bubble. And so there wasn't a planned uh, uh, method that you came in with. There was no agenda that you had sort of to implement here. You came in and you basically took what the teachers were telling you and, and worked with that, worked around that. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Would you could you like describe sort of some of the differences uh, with the education system here that uh, you you learned and picked up from and, and how you sort of figured out how to implement sort of some of your own uh, background into that? So I think um, I mean, the, the first part was just really understanding what um, what training does a teacher have when they go then into the classroom. So what is their previous training, university degree training? And it's not just what, the, you know, the subject matter, matter they studied, but what kind of teaching schools, do, uh, tools do they even um, learn at university? And then mm -hmm. realizing really there's absolutely nothing right. as far as, you know, didactic or, you know, classroom management. Um, so that was the first thing, just to realize that you really, really have to, you know, the, the whole education system, especially in this community, is all very teachers up front, kids are sitting down, it's, you know, teacher says something, kids repeat, and that's the end, you know, mm -hmm. pretty much the way the class goes down. And that kind of setting for children who are challenged, you know, having cha having challenges to concentrate because their mind keeps on wandering off into, you know, their, their challenging experience that they have had, um, that type of teaching is almost useless mm. because it's really, really hard for <clears throat> to get children engaged in that way and, and it's the engagement that will keep a child present, you know, and then actually capable of concentrating and learning. So um, the first part was just to really understand that teachers have basically no skills. Um, and then the other part was just I, I spent weeks just sitting in the classroom with teachers in the schools, in the camps, and just observing, um, you know, what does it actually look like? And the, their school reality is was often, um, you know, these are these container schools that are set up by UNICEF and many other mm -hmm. organizations. Um, which is basically just a, a, what is it, 10 by 6 meter container. Yeah. Um, and there are usually 50 kids in there, exactly. one teacher, yeah. no no teaching equipment, no um, movable furniture, mm -hmm. so they can't work in groups. They just have, you know, they don't even have sitting spaces for all students. Well, to describe it, actually, for people who have never visited one of these camps, what happens is basically there's an administrative building, which is kind of a container in and of itself, and then there's kind of a courtyard area where kids can maybe kick around a ball or something like that. And then you have basically all of these different little containers kind of set up in the area around it. Uh, and there's very little in the way of differentiation between like ages sometimes and things like yeah. that. Uh, there's um, in very little in the way of resources, teaching resources and things like that. Sometimes no textbooks. Sometimes, uh, I mean, could you get into actually th – this is something I wasn't really planning on asking, but could you get into sort of some of the resources that you saw – lacking in those situations and the way that teachers compensated for that? So, 
unfortunately, I, I, yeah, it's hard to say that there was much compensation going on. Mm. And, and it's not the fault of the teachers. Yeah. I think at that point, desperation was so high. I mean, many of the teachers themselves um, were IDPs themselves who had just survived mm -hmm. the genocide. So their own mental health was really challenged at the at the time that they're supposed to be standing in front of a classroom of 50 kids, of which just, you know, off the top of my hat, I would definitely say 40 of the 50 were showing signs of challenging classroom behavior. So, mm -hmm. um, and then no resources, as you said, like no textbooks, uh, sometimes in these containers, as I said, 50 children, it's screeching hot, there's no, there's no air conditioning and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of resignation, not too much compensation. Mm -hmm. um, I, and it's just, you know, just, you know, capacities were absolutely, you know, everybody was really, really struggling. So, um, but to this day, um, that's definitely one of the main challenges, just the lack of basic teaching materials and then also techniques and methodologies for the teachers. Well, okay. And you mentioned that, some, like you said, 40 of these 50 kids were exhibiting signs of, of trauma that were uh, preventing them from being able to learn effectively. Could you get into the specifics of what some of those signs are? So um, it's really hard, and I don't definitely do not want to stigmatize um, any children mm. as being traumatized. So it's, it's sometimes very okay. challenging to say this child is, is traumatized. I mean, what we all know is that the life experiences they've had had been extremely challenging. I mean, being uprooted in that way, majority of them losing, you know, losing their home village, losing their community, losing several family members, in the worst case, maybe also seeing and experiencing horrific things, then ending up in an IDP camp. And that is far from any kind of normality. So they're still in this very transient, chaotic life search, you know, situation. So to what degree they're actually traumatized or not traumatized um, becomes in that sense irrelevant. It's okay. they're just in a very challenging, challenged life situation. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it just from that perspective and so I mean, you know, if you have no, if you have no structure, if you have no nothing stable in your life, how are you going to sit down and try and focus for 45 minutes? I mean, your your brain is all over the place trying to figure out, you know, just figure out your basic, you know, security. Where do I find my tent when I go back home from mm -hmm. basically from the school to, to you know, where my family is now living in in a tent in an IDP camp? So, um, so. Yeah, so that's just what I'm saying. It's yeah, these are very very challenging life you know circumstances for these children, and so that's basically <clears throat> what the focus is on. So when we spoke before, uh, this is kind of a <laughs> this is kind of child psychology. When I want to, I mean, it's not just child psychology uh, only, but there are basically three different reactions that a child can have to a challenging situation. There's fight, flight, and then there's freeze. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I, I was wondering if you could. Tell, tell me a little bit about how those three reactions are reflected in the classroom. Okay. So um, so basically, I mean, going back to the question you had asked earlier about what, what are the, the symptoms that the children will be showing. <clears throat> so as I said, I, I don't want to stigmatize children as being traumatized or not, but you will see children with, um, you know, and it can be on both sides of the spectrum. So they're either very, very aggressive children mm -hmm. or incredibly inward drawn. So... Um, those are two reactions to a life experience that was so overwhelming. It completely, you got into this, you, you froze, you weren't able to, you know, to act or to, to get yourself out of the situation. And, and then after, you know, once you do regain um, a certain amount of security or stability, often then 
these challenging behaviors start to to really show. So people then get the children will get stuck in this either just being aggressive towards anything that comes from the outside because mm-hmm. they've you know experienced shocking um, events, or just withdrawing completely from life and basically physically being present but mentally absolutely not uh, not here. Mm-hmm. So um, you know it can be it can be aggression as I said and it can be completely inward drawn. It can be um, um, in general, I would say, and that goes for both, whether they're aggressive or completely inward drawn, this the ability to stay focused is mm-hmm. something that is really, really challenged because the mind starts to wander. And that's, you know, a, to a certain degree, that's something every teacher faces in the classroom. Like, how do you keep a child engaged? Right. But obviously a child whose mind keeps on get, getting stuck in these repetitive um, images and and. Uh, uh, reliving basically what they what they had experienced, it's really really challenging to to bring them into into the classroom. And so the, so basically, a lot of what the training that I was doing with the teachers is um, helping teachers understand how how these um, these events have changed children's behavior to a certain degree, and how their their ability to concentrate has been affected. So what can they as teachers do? to break down a 45-minute class, for example. Mm-hmm. How can they work with that? If they know the children are really, really struggling to stay concentrated, it doesn't help to then, you know, get frustrated and then end, end up shouting at a child, concentrate, because, right. you know, that doesn't go anywhere. So, you know, how can you break up your 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 45 minutes that you have with the class? So, you know, taking uh, every t- 10 minutes, have the kids stand up, sing a song, you know, do some kind of fun activity just to bring them back into the present or those children that are extremely challenged, for example, giving them something to hold on to. So like okay. one of those rubber balls and be squeezing the rubber ball because once you're physically doing something that really helps the mind to stay present. Mm-hmm. Um, so tools and tricks like that to help teachers uh, work with children who are challenged. And you said that a lot of these teachers are dealing with the same kind of trauma. Themselves. Yeah. Yes. And so I'm curious because you mentioned uh, uh, children have can have a reaction of something coming from the outside potentially uh, reacting like aggressively towards that, pushing against it. Did any? Did you experience with any teachers uh, who had undergone you know a traumatic situation them pushing back against you implementing these kinds of things? Definitely, I would definitely say that that how um, um, yes, also saw that that type of reaction. Um, so when when working with teachers, because the program that uh, I set up basically was for after school curriculum. So I was mm-hmm. teaching more. I was teaching social workers who then in after school activities would work through the arts. So a lot of painting, a lot of, you know, working with clay, um, different physical activities that help children, you know, come back into their body after after um, these experiences. Um Training them to work with these children, and then that helps the school, the children, when they go back into school with their academics. So basically, through games and play, and a lot of it, uh, for example, simple balancing um, activities or games with children. And when, once you're when you're when you're trying to balance, you have to stay focused. Um, as soon as you lose your focus, you lose your balance. Mm-hmm. And so, through doing that, um, you know those little in a game setting practicing to keep the concentration span longer and longer and longer each time you do it that actually then helps the children when they're back in the classroom to actually stay focused for a bit longer so um so the social workers who were working with the children in this after school um activities were very closely interacting with the teachers 
or the teachers were basically saying these and these and these are my extremely challenged children. Can you take them into your program? And then they, the social workers, after working with these children for several months, would go back to you know be in communication with the teachers and mm-hmm. see how the child was doing and so on. And at the same time, um, it was a lot of um, parents counselling. So um, talking to parents about um, what they within the home can do that will right. really help children in this challenged situation. And so I'm sorry, I've, I've, um, I haven't forgotten the question that you originally no, asked no, about okay. the pushback <laughs> of the teachers. I will get back to that, but I've, got, I've gotten slightly off track. But, um, but yeah, um, because, um, you know, the first thing to support children in this situation is to give them a sense of, you know, a, a certain sense of normality that mm-hmm. their day has structure. There, um, they have you know certain places they have to be at certain times. All these things really help children feel like they're in a normal, um, yeah, nor- they're back to normality, and that gives the sense of I feel safe, I feel secure, and that's when um, you know a lot of the the heightened production of cortisol and the stress hormones can actually be reduced. So. For, so, um, for Ooh, example, could you actually walk me through the chemistry of it, like just the chemistry of trauma and stress and things, or not, or just stress from like a situation, and and how that affects the brain? Well, so uh, you know, as we have we have our um, as you had mentioned earlier, we have fl- fight, flight, or freeze. Right. Um, with all three of these, we're and we go into the state of heightened alertness, mm-hmm. and that is basically driven through and a very very high high production of adrenaline as well as cortisol. And that's a good thing, and that helps us get out of dangerous mm-hmm. situations. It's a know, defense mechanism. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it's absolutely necessary. But it's also necessary that the, that goes back to its normal state. Mm-hmm. And as long as we stay in this in this perpetuate, you know, heightened alertness, it doesn't actually go back. And so that's why it's so important in creating this environment where um, where children feel okay. I, I'm, you know, I've, I'm safe. I'm secure physically, emotionally. Um, and then, and bring in you know structure and rhythm into their day, into their week, and everything. And then slowly, these hormones will start to balance themselves back up or mm-hmm. back into their normal range. Depending, of course, um, the individual trauma each child had. Exactly. Like it, for yeah. some children, it will t- it will take longer or more. Um, you know, therapeutic efforts combined with um, with just getting back to normality. And with others, it basically, you know, it can come back to its normal state. But if it doesn't, um, what cortisol basically does, this heightened production of cortisol, that definitely inhibits um, the brain's focus. So that's that, yeah, that's been scientifically proven. So if you have too much cortisol running through your brain, your blood, um, your ability to focus is literally limited. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing you have to get. You have to get that down to be able to actually uh, concentrate and focus. Well, it's kind of like in nature documentaries when you see an animal like panic. Yeah. It's the same kind of reaction. And then they'll go off in any direction. They don't, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And and then, you know, if you just, if you just um, you know, your, our own experiences, let's say, mm-hmm. I think we've both been fairly lucky so far in life to not have had to live through these kind of yes. um, traumatizing <laughs> experience. But and a car accident, for example, no? Yeah. You have, a, you have a car, your whole system is in shock. You're on high adrenaline, cortisol, like everything's pumping. Um, and that's going to stay for a while. 
But once you you're you're back home or you're with your loved ones and you've got the sense of security and stability, then slowly that will go back to its normal state. Mm -hmm. The problem um, with, for example, children who have experienced this, um, as in the case of these Yazidi children with the genocide, then they go on to move to live in a IDP camp, which is not normal. So they're they're staying on this height and they never actually go to that place mm -hmm. where. Okay, I'm back where you know I used to know life was safe, and now I'm back there again. So I know it's going to be safe again, and I can I can you know my my I can um, slowly let go of this heightened alertness state that I'm in. So that's the additional challenge in this in this displacement situation that you know the, the individual has not been able to go back to where they were safe before they had that horrible experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to recreate that. And so these child friendly spaces that we created. We're really with a very, very strong focus on giving children structure and rhythm and all the, and the sense of community. And the, I mean, the most important aspect of all this is the relationship they have with the caregivers that are at the um, at the centers. And so trying to create this type of stability within a very unstable um, situation. But that does it, it was it was very interesting. I mean, you can you can literally just see children come the first day, you know, don't know what to expect at a child-friendly space. They don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. They don't know this and that, that. And then by every day, they would, um, the team, they start the work with, you know, a, gr a group circle. All the kids are together. They always sing the same song, recite a poem and do a little play activity. And then the children went into their classrooms. Um, and then after they did all their different activities for several hours, they'd come back together and in a circle and to do the same, they'd sing a song, recite a poem, do a rhythm activity, and then go to their homes. And so, you know, the first two, three, four days, you can see kids come in this with this super alert energy, like trying to figure out, okay, well, where do I belong? What are we doing? I don't know. And then after after about ten days of doing the same thing with the children, you see them just coming in so much more relaxed because they know where their shoes belong. They know what. It's expected of them. Mm -hmm. They know that what they're going to be doing. They know which classroom they belong to. They know who is their special person who's going to be with them for the certain hours. And all that gives them this space where they can let go. They can actually, you know, let go of all the other things going around at that moment and can just feel safe and secure and stable. Oh, it's that repetition. It yes. allows them, and that, that creates the idea that like, oh, so we'll do this today and we're going to do it tomorrow. Absolutely. And yeah. we did it yesterday and most likely we're going to do it the day after yeah. tomorrow. And that that's that predictability because they've experienced something that just completely out of anything they could have predicted mm -hmm. what would be happening to them. So having this predictability, this reliability, the stability is really what helps them within their own you know, biochemical hormonal system to, to level that back slowly back into a normal space. And so that's what we can do at the child's friendly space. But the same parents can do that with their children at home. So that links back into questions you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So a lot of the work was also about um, psychoeducation. So working with parents, explaining to parents that um, a lot of it is about helping parents understand that this new behavior that their challenged children are displaying. So, for example, being very aggressive or not talking to anybody, not making eye contact with anybody, or regressive behavior. So, all of a sudden, six-year-olds behaving like four-year-olds, mm -hmm. or um, you know, the wetting of the bed, which is also a regressive behavior if the child was actually out of that stage already. Um, that parents understand this is a completely normal reaction a child is having to an absolutely abnormal 
situation that mm-hmm. they had experienced. And that gives parents a lot of relief because a lot of the worry is my child is now crazy. My child is abnormal. And to say, no, no, these, this is behavior. This is, you know, this is this is they are this is a normal react, reaction to an abnormal situation they experience and so what can you as parents do within that to help them and the, and that often again goes back into this idea of give them stability give them predictability always let the children know this is what we're doing now this is what's going to happen um you know having at certain times structure so for example bedtime stories or or bedtime routine if ch- if a child's really struggles with nightmares and bedwetting um have a have a have a bedtime routine where you really take an, you know, an hour with or half an hour, whatever time you can give with this child. And so the child already knows every day, okay, this is the way we prepare to sleep and this will and then this repetition will help the child to feel safe and safe enough to actually go to sleep and have a good night's sleep. So you've been here for eight years now and a large portion of this community still lives in these camps. Unfortunately, yes. I'm curious about what you see with the system that you've helped implement, what you see that still needs to be developed more, because a lot of these uh, families aren't going to be moving back. Well, that's a very big question you've just opened there. Um, So um, there's so many different levels. I mean, yes, it's... um, just it's it's heartbreaking because mm-hmm. um, yes, eight years later, I'm still working with some of the people I started working with at the beginning of 2015, when they had just arrived in the IDP camps, and eight years later, they're still living in tents at 50 degrees Celsius right. in summer and you know snow in the winter, um, and all those external circumstances are incredibly incredibly challenging, but I think what's even the most challenging. Uh, within looking at how do people recover from traumatic events is they're not able to regain like the reins over their life because they're in this limbo. Am I staying? Am I going? You know, so nothing normality is not being built up again or a new normal is not being built up. They're in the state of just waiting and um, to somehow accept what you have experienced and incorporate that into your biography and move forward, you need to have some kind of perspective. You need to have goals. You need to have this sense of, okay, I'm now again capable of my, you know, my own livelihoods, my making decisions about my life and really being a proactive agent within my life and not a, you know, not a victim, not a, not a passive, um, this is happening to me. And that for such a community cannot happen as long as they're in this protracted displa- displacement situation. So um, just looking from a he- mental health um, perspective, that's basically the most devastating circumstances you can be in after traumatizing events. And that, of course, um, you know, by now that's the parent generation to children, so all the children that are in first and second grade within the in the camp schools at the moment were born in the camp. Right. They don't have any other reference. Their only reference in life is living within an IDP camp. Um, but they're living often with parents who find it challenging to fulfill their roles as parents because they have not been able to heal from their own experiences. So it becomes this then... It's a cycle. It becomes a very, very challenging cycle because if you don't, you know, have healthy and stable parents, 
it's hard to have a healthy and stable parenting style. Mm -hmm. And then usually um, children are, are very challenged by that, of course, as well. What do the schools in these camps still need, in your view? Oh, gosh, where do we start? Um, <laughs> now I'm getting to the broader hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, apart from, from all the what I would describe as hardware, which is basically just, you know, some kind of uh, teaching facilities. I mean, it's great that these camp schools do, you know, are built up and exist for an emergency response in protracted displacement. It's impossible to teach within a tin container. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so loud. You can hear, you know, it's just not a teaching environment. So, you know, for, apart from all the hardware being a physical school building, all the teaching material and so forth, um, I would definitely say in general, the um, the Iraqi uh, education system needs a very, very strong emphasis on um, teacher trainings. So really, really helping teachers to understand how do children actually learn and how can I make learning an interesting and engaging and fun process for children to mm -hmm. engage in, which it currently unfortunately is not. And I say especially unfortunately, unfortunately here because Iraq actually used to have the best education system in the whole Middle East mm -hmm. until the you know beginning mid 80s. It had um, the best the best education system um, in the region. And then it just um, it all yeah, went downhill for various reasons. Various reasons. <laughs> so, yes. So, um, so uh, yeah. So, I would say at this point, um, the biggest thing the ex education system needs is a better teacher training uh, program. And then I think what is often also just, you know, because of the scale of uh, what has been happening over the last decades within Iraq, teachers really also need to be trained in understanding these additional challenges that uh, children often are facing when, you know, they, again, they've gone through, through some kind of violence or conflict or displacement, that that actually does have an impact on um, on their ability to engage in life in general, but especially within classroom settings. And how can teachers um, respond to that and make that a more yeah, inclusive and engaging process for children? So I'm glad I got you now because you're in the process of leaving. <laughs> You've kind of got sort of one foot out the door. <laughs> yes, yes. You're looking at the door. After eight years, yes. It's after eight years, it's um, it's a, it's a, it's time and um, for, it's bittersweet. <laughs> it's a very very yeah. bittersweet process. Yes, because um, I've I mean I'm as I said I feel very very fortunate that I did not come with an NGO bubble mm -hmm. um, to this country. So my connection with the local culture and. And the people I feel is was able to be very strong was had to be at the beginning just for my own exactly. security, and then was able to develop into that. So um, my my personal um, you know ties to people here is very very strong, as well as you know just a great appreciation to a lot of beautiful things the region has to offer. Mm -hmm. It also definitely has its challenges, which is why after eight years, there's also time to right. <laughs> time no, to go home yeah, for a while. Yeah, I know, I understand. <laughs> um, that. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so it's a it's a bittersweet moment. What have you got going on next? So um, I'm going to be taking a long break. I'm going to be down surfing in New Zealand for nice. a while. <laughs> um, and, uh, Enjoy I, Middle Earth. I'm definitely just, uh, just yeah, yeah, digesting this very, very interesting um, experience that I've had here over the last eight years. And then I will be heading, most likely I will be heading to Ukraine where I'll be building up basically a very, very similar program. So um, a specialized program for social workers who are working with children now, either in displacement within Ukraine or in Poland, 
um, as well as teachers who are working within the public education system within Ukraine with children who, again, have just had to experience the worst of humankind. Well, Jessica, I wish you the best of luck on that. And I really want to thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. I'd like to thank Jessica Prentice for coming in to talk. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can check out our podcast at kurdistanin.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at kurdistanin.net. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. Inside Kurdistan.